everybody. Oh, that was nice. I could start out every day like that. That was good. Well, hey, so I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. And shortly after my wife and I got married, when Sarah and I got married, she's the beautiful one standing right here singing really beautifully, by the way, just in case you wondered. Um, just wanted to clear that up if I could. Um, we got this call. We hadn't been married super long. We were living in the suburbs of Chicago, and we got a call from a friend really late at night. We're talking like 11 p.m., 11.30 p.m., and it was a friend of ours, and her husband uh, had had to go into the hospital. I think he had appendicitis, very sudden, and she was flying into town, and she's at the airport, and she said, hey, uh, so I called my brother to pick me up, but he kept getting lost trying to come up here. Can you guys come get me and drop me off at the hospital? We're like, yeah, we can, and we kind of asked her, are you sure everything's okay? And she said, well, yeah, it's fine. To be honest, it's probably just as well that he got lost because he just gets really, really freaked out and unsettled by hospitals. And it turns out, you know, he, he had grown up in a church. He'd heard about Jesus, hadn't really bought any, wouldn't call himself a Christian. And the idea of death just unnerved him horribly. It just freaked him out. He, the whole idea that there was a possibility of reincarnation or that there was nothing, you know, nihilism, whatever. He was just absolutely just freaked out by this. And, you know, this idea, he's not alone. The idea of dying is something that, in general, when we look around our culture, it's very unsettling. It's seen as something that, if at all possible, you need to fear it, you need to avoid it. And even when it's inevitable, we want to get as much control as we can about how it goes down. We, we just want to be able to almost like call our shot when it comes time to die. You know, it's so bad. A lot of parents overprotect their kids from the topic of death. I, I worked with teenagers almost, uh, most of my time was directed at that for over a decade, and it floored me how many times the first time a teenager went to a hospital or went to a funeral home, it wasn't with their mom, it wasn't with their dad, it wasn't with grandparents, it was with me. And I'm not saying, oh, I'm so great. I'm sitting here going, really? They're like, yeah, I never went. One kid said, yeah, my mom thought that if I went to grandma's funeral, it would just, it would scar me for life. So she never took me. I never got to go say goodbye. And I just, I, I, I would hope it's a righteous anger. Um, maybe it's that I, I grew up the son and the grandson of a pastor. And so we were just always going to nursing homes. We were always going to hospitals. We were always going to places like that. Maybe I just got desensitized. I don't know what it is. However, we got this culture that there's this issue. And the problem is we've lost this big story. We've lost what some people would call this overarching narrative that says, uh, you know, like there's a way to make sense of why we exist. There's a way to look and say, hey, we've got a purpose here on this earth in life. There's a reason death is a thing and there's a solution for that. And that is God's story. It's creation that God made everything. It's the fall that sin entered the picture and it broke everything. It's redemption that Jesus came to put things back together and give us hope. And it's restoration that God is in this process of weaving everything back together and he gives us a role in it. And eventually heaven comes to earth and we get to help rule in it if you follow Jesus. Such a beautiful story. But we, we've lost that because we live in this world. It's very postmodern. I know postmodern sounds very academic, but basically it just says there is no big story that connects all of this. Things are what they are, and we die. But God's story pushes back. The Bible says, no, no, that's not how this goes down. There is a big overarching story. And in a world that fears and is so uncomfortable with death, you know, it makes sense that our culture just becomes preoccupied with certain things. 
You know, especially if it's something that hints that death isn't necessarily a requirement. Did you ever think about this? So what are a couple of those things? Let me tell you. Zombies and vampires. Yeah, zombies and vampires. So a zombie is like a corpse that has been reanimated, and then usually it's coming back to wreak havoc in most instances. A vampire is, I looked this up to get the official definition, it's an undead mythical creature who lives forever and sucks the blood of other living humans to stay alive as well. So why these creatures? Well, I'm fascinated. I've been looking into this, and apparently whenever you're in a certain era of history in your culture, the biggest fear is going to be represented in the horror films of that era. And so when you look back, if any of you were growing up in the 50s and 60s, any of y'all, were you in school when the atomic bomb scare was still there and you were doing bomb drills in school? Just like, yeah, some of y'all, you, you remember this, right? Just like a lot of us did tornado drills, you did atomic bomb drills. That if a bomb came, you were going to get under your desk and prevent the nuclear fallout by putting a book over your neck, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And so what were all of the horror films of that era about? It was about big monsters that were uncontrollable. You know, you still had Godzilla, you had Mothman, you had things like that. Well, then you got a little bit later, you got into the 60s and 70s. What did a lot of the horror films, even into the early 80s, cover? What had to do with kids? Rosemary's Baby. Later, you had Stephen King's Children of the Corn, because all of these elder generation moms looked at their boomer daughters and they said, don't do what I did. Don't get married right out of high school and take on a mortgage and have a bunch of kids and just have kids eating your life. Don't do that. And so that was this fear. Not as many kids were born. Gen Xers, that's part of the reason you're so freaking cynical, was that era, right? And so it was kids. Well, now, what are all of the horror films in our era today where we fear death? Well, the, that post-apocalyptic genre, it is alive, and it is well over the past couple decades. I'll give you some examples if you look at the screen. You know, there's a couple movie posters here of Warm Bodies, Zombie Flick, and Twilight, which was an incredible series that a lot of people uh, watched. It basically put Summit Entertainment on the map eventually. Uh, and then they've also got games for kids now, like this one, Va Vampires versus Zombies. Like, here's a poster for it. Right? I tried to keep things reasonably rated PG, not to freak anybody out, because if you're like me and you get really bad dreams, there you go. So we have to ask ourselves, so if we're followers of Jesus, and we see that there's this fear in our culture, we have to ask some big questions. Well, first of all, well, why is it that we don't have to cave into the same fears that our culture is grappling with? We need to ask, what's so different about how we as Christians view earthly life. And the last thing is, so when Jesus says some of these tough things, today, Brandon just read it a second ago, when he says, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're really a follower of me, what is it he's getting at? Because I guarantee, unfortunately, Jesus was not talking about zombies and he was not talking about vampires. And what we're gonna see when we get to the bottom of this, if you're a note taker, I think if you could boil it down kind of into one little idea, it's that if we are not eating Jesus' flesh and we're not eating, or if we're not drinking Jesus' blood, then we're not really living the way God made us to live. If we're not eating Jesus' flesh and we're not drinking Jesus' blood, we're not living the way he made us to live. And so I'm going to invite you, uh, I'm going to pray just briefly and ask the Holy Spirit to just open up our minds, to soften up our hearts so that this can really land in our life and we can do something with this. And then we're going to dive right in. So, Jesus, we are here. I thank you we can be here. God, even in the midst of um, a second wave of, of COVID-19 coming, I thank you that um, with the right precautions, we can be here in person. Um, I, I thank you that 
um, God, whether we're at home today, whether we're in this room today, um, that you are everywhere. Holy Spirit, I ask, will you transform our minds? Um, because we can't do that. God, only you can really do that. Would you soften our hearts and transform our hearts, Father? Uh, we want to look at these tough sayings that you're, um, you've given us in your word. And we want to walk out of here going, I know what to do with that this week. I get it. So God, will you help all of us get it? Jesus, would you just make it clear? In your name we pray. Amen. So if you want to get a head start with your Bible, your tablet, your phone, if you want to go to insidescc.org, we've got the scripture on there, and you flip to John chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 53, but sometimes when we're going to be diving into the Bible, it helps out if you kind of get your feet wet and know, okay, so what's the deal about this book? Who wrote it? What's kind of been happening? And so I've actually got this little snippet, it's from some of our friends at the Bible Project, and it answers a few of those questions, and in just like a minute and a half, it gives you an idea, oh, that's where we are and then we're just going to dive right in, all right? So watch the screen, check it out, and we'll be right back. The Gospel according to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, he appears many times in the story itself, and there's some debate about whether it's John, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony, and it's been brilliantly designed with the clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. Jesus will perform a sign or make a claim about himself and that will result in misunderstanding or controversy. And so in the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. All right. Gosh, I love the Bible Project. If you ever read anywhere in the Bible and you jump on their website, everything's free. Posters, videos, gives you the background, lets you know why it's there. So good. So I hope that gets you up to speed. We're in a new series this week. We're in a series called Things I Wish Jesus Didn't Say. We're actually going to put the logo of this series up here. And so we're looking at stuff that Jesus said that makes us uncomfortable. Stuff Jesus said that makes us confused. The things Jesus said that are hard things that make us have to dig just a little bit deeper to understand. And I want to ask, for any of you who grew up in church, do you look at an image like this, and can you just kind of like, can you smell the mustiness of the Sunday school room? Can you feel the flannel graph characters? Yeah, I, I don't, anybody under the age of 30 probably didn't know what flannel graph is. Can you taste the off-brand stale VBS cookies that the old ladies brought? Oh, when Craig did this graphic, he's like, I'm going to try to kick it old school and kind of bring the heart. I was like, yeah, do it. And then he made that, and Jess and I are walking by it in the hallway, and we're like, oh, bro, you did well. 
You did real good. So I love it. And to give you an idea today where Jesus is at, uh, you got to have a map, right? Seriously. So, so here's the deal. So we are in Galilee. Jesus grew up in Galilee, and uh, he grew up in a town called Nazareth, but his base of operations for his ministry is a town called Capernaum. It's this fishing village. Uh, you'll see it on the map. It's kind of circled with a little uh, yellow circle there. Probably about 1,500 people, a nice little place. Uh, Peter lived there, and Jesus' base of operations was Peter's house. And so uh, I'm actually going to give you a picture of this little town. It's a modern picture of Capernaum, and you can see they've excavated stuff. And what's so cool is where Jesus is saying these words today, uh, the synagogue that he was in, the synagogue now is a more modern synagogue. But when you look at the base of it, the stones at the very bottom, we are pretty certain were the stones of the synagogue Jesus taught in. So if you ever get to go there, you can actually stand and like see the rocks of this building. I just think that's so neat. So when we pick up this story, you got the Bible Project video, got it you up to speed a little bit. Jesus, his popularity is booming by the time we get to John 6. It's time for the Passover celebration, and they're celebrating way back when, when God's people had been in Egypt, they were slaves, God sent a bunch of plagues, and they ended up getting delivered from Egypt. So they're remembering that. Jesus just fed thousands of people. We're talking like 5,000 men plus women and kids. So somewhere 10, 15,000, they estimate. And he did it all with just five loaves and two fish. So Jesus showed this sign. And he walked on the water. That was another sign. The crowds are gathering to hear him teach in record numbers. People are starting to ask for stuff. Religious experts, they're getting ticked off. And Jesus has just identified himself with, cue the metaphor, he says, I am the bread of life. He's one of those I am statements. He makes a bunch of those in John. I am the bread of life. And so he does this. People are getting upset, and he just plunges ahead. So let's look at what verse 53 says. Let's dig in. John 6, 53. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and you drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, of course, a lot of Jesus' listeners, they take him pretty literally here. And frankly, they're probably horrified. They're not thinking zombies and vampires, but they are weirded out. Because first of all, a couple things. One, drinking blood was absolutely forbidden by Jewish law. So if you're a Jewish person and you hear drinking blood, you're thinking, nope, not going to go there. And second thing, cannibalism, eating flesh, it wasn't just something that was considered wrong by Jewish people. If you were in the Greco-Roman world, if you were anywhere around the Mediterranean region, you heard cannibalism and you thought that's disgusting, that's an abomination, I don't want anything to do with it, I don't want anything to do with anybody who tells me to have something to do with it. So when Jesus says this, it's like, what? But Jesus is really aiming at the few people in the crowd who know, I got to look beyond the obvious to what he's meaning here. When he says he's the bread of life, and then he says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he's got to be getting at something, because they were celebrating something called the Passover meal. And when you celebrated the Passover meal, one of the things on the table was the Passover lamb. And what that commemorated was, way back when we said they got delivered from Egypt, one of the things they had done when the final plague came, and that was the angel of death was rolling into town. And when this angel of death came, it meant every firstborn in the land was going to die. But... If you took a lamb and you killed the lamb and you took its blood and you smeared it all over the doorpost of your house, then when the angel came, it would pass over your house and you were saved. So they're remembering this moment. So maybe a few people are thinking, okay, there's got to be some significance here. 
Remember, Jesus hasn't told them to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Communion hasn't come. So when he says this, people aren't thinking about that. And so this happens. And the truth is, though, people may be thinking, but man, even drinking the Passover lamb's blood, we can't even do that. So you got to be talking about something more, right? There has to be some spiritual thing that you're pointing out this earthly thing and you have some spiritual meaning, right? You know, we look at people who have used metaphors really well, and somebody I think, uh, he probably gets forgotten a little bit by generations today, but if any of y'all grew up listening to Paul Simon, or before he was just Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel, and I'm talking about long before the days of You Can Call Me Al and all that stuff, but what were a couple of the songs that put him on the map? Well, there was I Am a Rock. So you remember that one? I am a rock, I am an island. And a rock feels no pain. And then the guitar would be like, do, 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 do. And an island never cries. All right. Later, he wrote a song called Loves Me Like a Rock. And he was kind of the captain of the metaphor. When he wrote this song, I am a rock, he was painting this picture. It wasn't like a literal rock, but it was this song about a guy who he had been beaten, he'd been wounded, he was cynical, and he was hurting. Or Loves Me Like a Rock, he used that rock imagery again, but he was talking about the love of a mother and how strong and, and, and how lasting it was. And so I think Jesus would look and say, I think Paul gets what I was doing. I think he gets it all these years later. Jesus is using this metaphor, but he keeps going on. He just keeps elaborating. So let's look at the next couple verses. Verse 54, Jesus continues, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day, for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Now, if you read all of chapter 6, we don't have time to do. I'd challenge you to do it this week because it really ties all this together. He'd already kind of said this back in verse 39. He's speaking in riddles. He's using metaphors. Wise teachers did that a lot. And he's repeating himself a lot because he wants to elaborate on what he said. And he wants to emphasize what he said. And he's trying to get people to think beyond the obvious. He wants people to think there's more to this than the literal thing I'm talking about. He's figuring out who is in this crowd that is here just to get things from me. There's just, it's all about them. But who is here that they're kind of here for the right reasons? They're tracking with me. They're tracking with what I'm calling them to do. And so I think we have to ask ourselves this question as a modern reader. Are you someone who just takes things at face value? Do you read stuff, make your assessment, and move on? Or are you willing to dig? Are you really willing to dig and say that there's more here? Not just, oh, I read my little Devo, I read my 60 seconds today of the Word, and I move right on. No, no, no. Not, oh, I came and I sat here at church, which is awesome. I'm so glad you're here. I did this, and I'm going to move on with my week, and 90% of it's going to be gone within four hours. No, are, are you willing to dig and not take it at face value? That's a question I think Jesus was throwing at them then, and we've got to ask ourselves now. Because you notice in verse 54 and 55, he says that if you eat his flesh and drink his blood, what's the result? It's a big deal. He says, you have eternal life. That even when your current body dies, you can look forward to a future resurrection. That Jesus is going to come back and when heaven comes to earth, he's going to breathe your life into a new body. This eating and drinking, it means thinking really long term, not short term. It means thinking about what really matters. When he said, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink, he's basically saying, no, no, like I'm really what flesh and blood should be about. Flesh and blood were created to help embody life in a human body. He says that's the whole point. They're supposed to be alive. 
And when you go all in with me, then it means you're really going to be alive. And in verse, six, verse 56, you see what he said? He said, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. This word remaining, it basically means staying put. It means abiding. And so Jesus paints this picture of a relationship that's really tight. There's this resolve. There's this trust. There's a staying puttedness. There's a deep, deep dependence. It's this really awesome sounding relationship. And he's wanting everybody in that crowd to ask the question then and us now, would you describe your relationship with Jesus like that? Would you say, yeah, Jesus, there's a resolve. When I follow him, yeah, there's this deep trust. There's this staying put in us. I'm not going anywhere. I know he's not. There's this dependence. I don't go through a day without going, I need you, or this day doesn't go like it's supposed to go, Jesus. Would you describe your relationship with Jesus like that? My kids this summer have embarked on a new hobby, and it's climbing trees. Um, Somewhat terrifying and somewhat I'm proud of them. I kind of live in the middle on that. So my kids are eight, six, and five. And this one day, um, this one day, our oldest, Miles, he's eight, comes running into the house. And, and I'm actually at work. And he says to Sarah, Mom, help, Cy and Dal are up in a tree. She's like, what? So she goes out, and sure enough, Silas and Adalia are up in a tree. And it turns out they'd worked out this cool method. There was this long branch of this sugar maple tree. And they had turned the wagon upside down, used it as a step stool. And Silas told Adalia, he said, hey, if you hold the branch I'm going to shimmy up, and then I'll weight the branch down so you can shimmy up. Well, they got up here, but the problem is Silas can get down, Adalia can't. So my five-year-old daughter is stuck in a tree. And when they went through this process, there was this smaller branch on the way up that when they shimmied, it broke off. And it ended up just hanging there. And, you know, in the, in the heat of the moment, whatever, everything going on, I thought, oh, I'll get it later, but I forgot about it. And for the first few days, this branch hung there, and it's mostly broken up, but it's just barely hanging on, and the leaves still had, you know, some greenery to it. But then after about a week or 10 days, I looked, and not only had it been left there hanging to whack my wife in the face when she mowed the lawn, but it was withered up. And I thought it was so interesting, because this branch, it was technically hanging around. It was somehow still attached. It would have claimed, yeah, I'm a branch of this tree, but there was no life in it. It wasn't abiding. Even though it was still around, it still looked like a branch, it was dead. And we need to ask ourselves, well, is that me? Am I here around the church? Am I here around all these relationships with people following Jesus? And I say I'm on board, but the truth is I'm just hanging around and I'm dead. I'm not abiding. I'm not remaining in Jesus. I don't even know if, where he's at. I can't even hear him right now. And we've got to ask ourselves that question because... Again, if we're not eating Jesus' flesh and we're not drinking Jesus' blood, then we're not really living. We're not living the way he made us to live. Let's tackle this verse 57. Go on. It says, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So he's... So we're looking at this, and the, okay, so the living God sent Jesus to live in a human body so we could experience life not just in the flesh, but like eternally, like the life does not stop, and it even involves a new body later on. That's intriguing. So if he did all that, now he's saying eat his flesh and drink his blood, we probably need to get ready to feast because Jesus is basically saying the same thing that's sustaining me through everything I'm doing 
That's what's made to sustain you if you follow me. So he's making everybody ask another big question. Well, what, what sustains you? What keeps you going? What fuels you? How would you answer those questions? What's sustaining you? What keeps you going? What sustains you? Because, man, when he talks about this bread from heaven, he's referencing back again to the history. It was after they got out of slavery in Egypt and they went out into the wilderness and people were grumbling and they're saying, oh, it was better in slavery. We ate better. It was so good. What are we going to do? We're going to starve. There's no water. And God told Moses, who was leading him, he said, hey, I, I got you. You don't have any food. All you have to do is go outside each day and get what you need. And they would go outside and there was manna that fell from heaven and they would gather what they needed. They went in and it was taken care of. But Jesus says, well, it's kind of like that, but there's a difference. Because whoever ate that manna, they, they died in their body. They died. But when you're eating my flesh, no, it, it, it's bigger than that. You can look forward to everlasting life. The kind of eating I'm telling you about, this dependence, this remaining in me, this sustaining, no, you're, you're not just going to die. You've got a further life you can look forward to. I thought it was cool a while back, Brad, we were in a series, and he was telling some stories about what the early church did that was so insane, but so beautiful. It was just so good. And a couple examples he gave, there was one he talked about how a lot of times abortion, the way abortion worked is you let the baby be born, but in Roman culture, they just take the kid and they go chuck it at the riverbank to die. So you had Christian families scooping up babies and coming home like, well, don't know how we're going to provide for this baby and the other six, but well, that's what we got to do. And they just went about it. And then there was another example it was where when plagues would hit towns, a lot of times uh, the people who knew what a plague was were the people who were maybe like the pagan priests. They were the more educated. They saw a plague, and typically they pieced out. They got out of town because they knew that's their only way to live. But Christians had a different reputation. Christians, a lot of times, even when the plague looked bad, even when deaths were piling up, they would stay in these towns. They would take care of these sick people. And it seemed a little bit insane. It's like, well, don't you know you're going to die? Why? Well, I, I might die, but I don't really die. Like, yeah, it stinks. I hate seeing all my neighbors who live here dying, but, but I, I'm sustained. There was something grounding them. There was something, there was this remaining, this staying puttedness they had that just was unlike anything the world had seen. And it was, it, it was this. They were eating Jesus' flesh. They were drinking his blood. They were truly trusting what he said, that he was who he was, that he was going to do what he was going to do, and things were going to be the way he said they were going to be. Oh, it was beautiful. Let's wrap it up, 59. So Jesus said this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, and on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And so, to their credit, they admit it's gone over their heads. Jesus is here, he's in his backyard, he's in Capernaum, he's laying it out, and they don't get it. They're thinking so literally. They miss the whole heavenly meeting. The spiritual meeting, it just goes over pretty much everybody's head. And the truth is you can't accept what you don't understand. So what happens? Well, if you zoom a little bit later, we can't read the whole thing, but again, check it out later. You go a few verses later, and it says many of the disciples that have been following and gathering, who loved getting the food, loved seeing the healings, loved hearing about them walking on water, that saw the signs, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and they start piecing out. And there's no doubt that this mass exodus of all these followers freaks out his 12 disciples he recruited in the first place, because they're going, oh, it was kind of fun to have, you know, kind of like a, 
a hype man going here, but now they're starting to creep away. And so many followers depart. Jesus basically had upped the ante that, no, these people were here for the wrong reasons. And at one point, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, well, hey, do any of you want to go? Do you want to go too? You know, we'll put that picture back up again of Jesus and the reactions of the people. So anime, I think that's so good. Eat his body? Ridiculous. And Jesus said, is that what you're thinking? You're my inner 12. You're my dudes. Is that what's going through your head? And fortunately, when a lot of the others pieced out, those 12 did not. A lot of the women who were with them did not peace out. They recognized Jesus wasn't just speaking literally. They saw, no, he's calling us to this deeper level of dependence. He's calling to this deeper devotion than we've ever seen. And I love it. Peter even asked the question. He says, well, Jesus, to whom else should we go? Like, where else is there to go? Like, you're it, man. I'm not leaving. I'm staying put. If you're not eating Jesus' flesh and you're not drinking Jesus' blood, you're not really living. He just gets at this and gets at this. So that's what we're called to do. Say, so, well, how in the world do we apply this? Well, it probably helps. You know, we've kind of dug in and figured this out. How would we summarize this in like modern English, in like Shelby County English, with proper grammar, of course? <laughs> Just wanted to emphasize that. So eating is flesh. Well, what's it mean to eat Jesus' flesh? Well, it means you trust and you believe in Jesus, that he was who he said he was. And then when he came on this mission to save the world, that it's going to be successful, we already know how it's going to end, and that we, if we follow him, have a role in it, okay? So eating his flesh means we trust and believe in who Jesus is, what Jesus does, and that we have a role in this big overarching story, creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. We're in that restoration period, and we got an important job. And drinking his blood, well, that means trusting that when he died, his death covered our sins, and that the big penalty, which was forever death, not just death in this body, but death like as a soul, as a spirit, as in apart from God forever, Jesus took care of that. So that is what drinking his blood means. We trust his death got, has us covered. It covered the price. We have hope that this is not the end. This is not the end. So as we walk away, I imagine you're in probably a few different spots. When we get to this point, I never want to hem in. Like the Holy Spirit could be saying something to you that doesn't fit any of these, but I, 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 we try really hard to throw out, this is maybe where you are, so that as you're processing, you're going, all right, God, where am I in this? I'm weighing on those questions. What sustains me? Am I really abiding, or am I just hanging around? You know, what am I really about? That maybe this will help peak where you're at. So I imagine some of you, you've never really bought into Jesus, and if you're honest, you'd say, yeah, I, I haven't jumped on board with him. I wouldn't call myself a follower, but you know, as I look around the world, and I see a lot of people who are really nihilistic, that there is no purpose, this all just comes to an end. I really love this idea that there's this big overarching story, this narrative, this meta-narrative that ties everything together. I want to know more. I have questions, but, you know, I realize I need a Savior. And, you know, you have a lot to surrender, but you need a Lord. You need a Lord who's going to walk you through that, who's going to show you the purpose of your life. And so, for you today, the step Jesus is telling you to do is make a decision that, you're either going to say, yeah, I accept, I'm on board, or here in a minute, I'm going to jump on the app and I'm going to click, hey, I've got questions. I've got a prayer request. I need to talk to somebody about this, or you need to flag me down before you leave. That's fine too. You know, so I would challenge you, if you're here and you've never bought into Jesus, take your step, accept Jesus, eat his flesh, drink his blood, 
and look at experiencing the life he made you to live. Now, some of you are in a different spot. Some of you, maybe you're teetering on the edge of walking away from Jesus. You know, you'd say, well, I'm a Christian. I made a commitment. Um, Having a Savior really sounded good at the time. Uh, The benefits of eternal life sounded freaking legit, and I jumped on board. But I never really surrendered as Lord. The Savior piece I got, the Lord piece, I I admit, I wasn't all in. My focus kind of stayed on me, what I could get. I wasn't really thinking about what can I give back to the church and God's mission. You know what? What can I give to other people? But the truth is, you don't have to walk away. You don't have to be like all those people who heard Jesus, took him at face value, and peaced. No, no, today is the day you can hunker down. Today is the day you can abide for the first time. You can have a relationship with Jesus that has that staying puttedness, that has that remaining in himness. You know, you may need to admit, wow, I had some stuff wrong. But when you do that, you admit, no, there's this plan for my life I didn't even realize, but I want to be a part of that, like, restoration process. That's bigger than me. I want that. And so your step today, if you've been teetering on the edge of walking away from Jesus and saying, I don't even know why I'm doing this, you need to take your step and you need to recommit to Jesus. And that is how you can eat his flesh and you can drink his blood and you can experience the life he created you to have. Now, some of y'all, you're in another spot. Some of you, you know, you are committed to Jesus and you have no doubt in your mind But there's something underneath, some deep underlying struggle, some deep underlying pain. And you've just been through a lot. You've seen the beauty of life. You've seen the beauty of the church. So you're still here, but you're looking and you've you've endured this. And the Holy Spirit at some point here just brought to mind something that's been under the surface. And you just haven't admitted it. You haven't talked about it. You haven't dealt with it. You've just stuffed it. And so, I mean, this could be a hurt all the way back when you were a kid. It could be a doubt that's crept up on you the past few months. It could be a relationship in your life that's reeling and you don't know what to do about it. It could be a fear that's overwhelming you. It could be as you've watched everything stir with all the chaos, first with COVID-19 and now with everything with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all the protests and, and you're just looking at this and you're just like, I just don't even know what to do about this world today. Any of these things. For you today, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood, well, it means you need to surrender that. You need to bring it out in the open because if it's going to heal, you you, got to bring it out of there. It can't stay buried. It's like if you ever got like, you know, a splinter and you thought you got all of it and then a week later it's still there and you're looking like, oh gosh, and it's festering and you know, I got to get the needle. I got to get the tweezers. I got to go in and I got to extricate it if it's going to get better. That's where you're at. Something, some relationship, some hurt, some struggle. And it's okay to ask for help. Jump on the app, say, here's how I need to be prayed for. I need to talk to somebody. Mary, I need to talk to you. Pastor Mary, I need to talk to one of your counselors. I need someone to pray with me after the service. I need some deliverance. So take your steps. Surrender to Jesus. Open up. Unpack it. Eat his flesh. Drink his blood. And experience the life that he created you to live. If we're not eating Jesus' flesh and drinking Jesus' blood... No matter where we fall, we're not really living. We're not really living the way he made us to live. So the band's going to come back up. And we have to admit, you know, this is just the first hard saying of Jesus. There's a lot of these we're going to look at that we're going to tackle. And it can be really tough. But if we keep at this, 
for the next several weeks this summer, God can bless this. You know, even some of us, it's so funny, some of us who, I, I, I went to a Christian undergraduate college and got a bachelor's. I'm in seminary and I'm, I've almost got my master's. And so many of these things Jesus said, I took it at face value. I went, uh-huh, that's great, that's cute. And I moved on with my life. And as I'm digging back in and saying, God, what do you have to show me? I'm going, oh my goodness, this is so big. Like, if I'm willing to be brutally honest with myself, I see this picture better. I get where I fit in this story. This makes so much sense. So you have a chance now to respond. And we say, well, with your time, with your talents, and your treasures. So if you say, I need to give back to God my tithe and my offering, go to one of these boxes in the corners and just give back to God. With your time, maybe as you're looking ahead and you're thinking, well, when things get back to normal, I need to plug in. I need to be a part of the life of the church. I need to serve somewhere, but I need to think about that. I would encourage you this. They're going to throw a graphic up on the screen. This Tuesday night from 5 to 8, anytime you can drop in here at church from 5 to 8, and we're going to have a prayer labyrinth, a guided prayer labyrinth set up in this room to just help you connect with God. The theme is by faith. And maybe you or your family just need to come and you need to just go through that and have that time with God and just sift and think about it. Maybe you need to jump on InsideSCC.org and say, okay, yeah, I got to ask for prayer. I've got to say I need a counselor. I need to take a next step. Whatever it is, if we're not eating Jesus' flesh and we're not drinking Jesus' blood, we're not really living, but it doesn't have to stay that way. You can eat, you can drink, you can feast, you can live. We can do this. So as we sing this blessing together, Holy Spirit, I don't know where we sit with this exactly. I don't know where everybody falls, but Jesus, you do. You know where we stand. You don't want any of us to leave the same as we came. Will you soften us up? Will you give us just a clear picture? This is what you want us to do, each of us where we sit. And may these words of this blessing that we sing over each other, would you just make this true this week, Jesus? Because we love you. We want to see your blessing. We want to experience life the real way. We come to you as your kids, not as zombies, not as vampires, but your kids who know you love us. Help us love you back, Jesus.